0: Hello, I'm Eric Huang, you're listening to Saint Podcast, a podcast about the always fascinating and often controversial lives of the saints. This is a history and culture podcast that traces the origins of morality tales of the saints, or hagiographies, and how they continue to impact life today. We have some news. The Saint Podcast Patreon site has just launched. Patrons will have early access to new episodes, as well as transcripts, bonus Patreon-only episodes, and other exclusive Saint Podcast content. Go to patreon.com forward slash saintpodcast for details. That's saint spelled out. S-A-I-N-T. Your patronage is greatly appreciated, and will help keep Saint Podcast going. Season 2 of Saint Podcast is dedicated to mystics, saints who had transcendental experiences with the divine. Over the next 10 episodes, we'll explore the legend of a nun who suffered from transverberation, literally a burning arrow of love that pierced her heart and entrails. We'll also encounter saints who bore stigmata, the bloody wounds of the crucifixion, and saints who battled the devil through the mystic rite Of exorcism. The first Mystics episode is about a saint called the father of monks. He's one of the first desert fathers, hermits who lived solitary lives in the harsh deserts of Egypt. Throughout his life, he was attacked and tempted by the devil in the guises of a beautiful woman, unimaginable riches, terrifying demons, and a centaur. This is the story of Saint Anthony of Egypt, the mystic in the desert. St. Anthony of Egypt is known by many names. St. Anthony the Great or Anthony the Abbot, also just Anthony Abbot. The modifiers to his name are to prevent confusion between him and another St. Anthony, St. Anthony of Padua, a cleric from Lisbon who lived about a thousand years after our Anthony of Egypt. St. Anthony of Egypt was born on the 12th of January 251 in the city of Heracleopolis, the capital of an ancient Egyptian province. Several ancient manuscripts detail the life of Anthony of Egypt, but the most famous was written by a controversial saint, bishop, and scholar named Athanasius of Alexandria. Athanasius was one of Anthony's friends. He published a biography called Life of Anthony in the year 360, four years after Anthony died. The Greek text was translated into Latin around 374 and became a bestseller for hundreds of years afterwards. According to Athanasius' Life of Anthony, Anthony comes from a landowning Coptic family, Christian Egyptians who live under Roman rule. Anthony is a bit of a loner. He doesn't do well in school. It's likely that he only ever spoke Coptic, the local ancient Egyptian language, and didn't know any more than a tiny bit of Greek the language of the ruling class when anthony is about 20 years old his parents die leaving him their fortune and a younger sister in his care 6 months later anthony is on his way to church something he does every day as he walks he contemplates a passage in the bible matthew 4:20 it's about how the apostles left their lives to join jesus then his mind wanders to another passage acts 434-35
1: to For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need.
0: This passage describes how followers of Jesus gave away everything they owned to the poor. During the Mass that Anthony attends, the priest reads Matthew 9 12.
1: If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven.
0: Then come, follow me. This is part of Jesus' response to a man who asks for a surefire way to enter heaven. Jesus tells him to follow the commandments, but if you want to be perfect, you must also relinquish material possessions and give them to the poor. The passage touches Anthony deeply. It's as if the priest read it to directly address the questions raised while Anthony was walking to church earlier that morning. After Mass, Anthony returns home, then gives away his inherited possessions and fortune. He keeps only the clogs on his feet, a modest house, and a little money to support his sister. The next day, Anthony goes to church again. This time, it's Matthew 6.34 that the priest reads.
1: Therefore, don't be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Each day's own evil is
0: sufficient. Although Anthony had given away nearly all of his inherited fortune, something still doesn't feel right. Hearing this passage, Anthony knows now what to do. He gives away what he still has left, sends his sister to a convent to be cared for by nuns, and turns his back on civilization. This is the start of Anthony of Egypt's life as an ascetic, a hermit who practices constant self-deprivation and constant religious contemplation. And he's one of the very first Christian ascetics, maybe the first to live in a desert. What's clear is that Athanasius' best-selling biography cast Anthony as the model ascetic, a template for all others to follow, and they did follow, in the tens of thousands across centuries. The mystical revelations from the Bible that inspired St. Anthony of Egypt to leave civilization behind started a new trend. Prior to Anthony's example, the model to follow was martyrdom. We covered the legends of ten martyrs last season. All of them sought glory for the Christian God by openly professing their illegal faith in direct defiance to authorities and dying because of it. They lived their lives as part of the material world that eventually killed but also saved them. Dying a martyr just about guarantees becoming a saint, which grants immediate entry into heaven. Anthony and those that followed his example did the opposite. They left the material world behind, denying all sensual human desires and needs to also become saints and enter heaven. Anthony's act of selling his possessions to live alone changed Christianity it would eventually lead to the widespread monastic system we have today. The words monk and monastery come from the Greek word monos, which means one, solitary, as in the solitary monk who lives alone. It's the same root word that gives us monocle, monogamy, and monobrow. So Anthony of Egypt decides to turn his back on civilization. He isn't sure what to do, but he knows of a man in the next village who's lived a life of solitude and prayer since boyhood. Anthony seeks him out and lives with this man for a time, practicing a discipline of piety, self-denial, and labor. For several years, Anthony moves from village to village, seeking out similar holy men. Athanasius tells us how Anthony learned different virtues from each of them.
1: He observed graciousness of one, the unceasing prayer of another. He took knowledge of another's freedom from anger and another's loving kindness. He gave heed to one as he watched, to another as he studied. One he admired for his endurance, another for his fasting and sleeping on the ground. The meekness of one and the long-suffering of another he watched with care, while he took note of the piety towards Christ and the mutual love which animated all.
0: Anthony takes on the abilities of the hermits he encounters like some X-man perfecting their talents as he makes each one his own. Eventually, Anthony settles in his own home, a modest dwelling on the outskirts of a village where he is finally content and humbled, beloved by all who meet him, except for one, the devil. The Devil's attacks are subtle at first, whispered reminders of the wealth Anthony once had a fleeting memory of delicious food and a soft, luxurious bed. Then, anxiety about his sister. Is she happy in the convent he sent her to? Has he done the right thing? Despite these worries, Anthony is able to settle his mind with meditation on scripture and prayer. So the devil changes tact. He now takes physical form to continue taunting him. Passers-by describe seeing Anthony arguing with a dark figure.
1: The one would suggest foul thoughts, and the other counter them with prayers. The one fire him with lust. The other, as one who seemed to blush, fortify his body with faith, prayers, and fasting.
0: Anthony's faith is too strong. The devil transforms into a beautiful woman. Anthony finds her charms irresistible, but keeps his mind focused on the threatened fire and gnawing worm as well as other punishments of the damned. Anthony narrowly escapes with his innocence. Understanding that he's been beaten, the devil resumes his natural form. For some bizarre reason, Anthony has no idea who his adversary is and demands to know his identity.
1: I am the friend of whoredom and have taken upon me incitements which lead to it against the young. I am called the spirit of lust.
0: Athanasius portrays Anthony's trial primarily as a battle against lust, rather than against any of the other seven deadly sins. You'd think the devil would employ all of them before giving up. According to the Egyptian ascetic Abba Poemin, who was born shortly after Anthony died, the devil and his minions can only amplify one's own troubles and perversions.
1: They do not fight against us at all, as long as we are doing our own will. For our own wills become the demons, and it is these that attack us in order that we fulfill them.
0: According to Abba Poemun, the devil is powerless. His only weapons are the ones we provide him with. Given this, perhaps lust was the sin Anthony, or maybe his biographer Athanasius, found the most difficult to combat. The temptress is a very common Christian trope in which good men are ruined by a woman from Eve to Jezebel to Salome, and even Mary Magdalene. A good old-fashioned temptation scene only helped to catapult life of Anthony into becoming a bestseller. Anthony's triumph over the devil and lust sees him alter his lifestyle to be even more austere. He stops sleeping, keeping a vigil all night, lest the devil return. When he does sleep, it's usually on the floor. He only eats once a day, just after sunset, salted bread and some water. Sometimes he eats once every two days, then once every four days. All the while, Anthony feels his life is still full of excesses he could discard. So he leaves his village to live in an abandoned Roman tomb near his hometown. He asks an acquaintance to bring him bread and seals the tomb behind him. Anthony lives in solitude for many years and his reputation grows. This greatly concerns the devil. The last thing he wants is for Anthony's example to inspire others to follow him. So the devil attacks, this time physically. Scores of demons enter the tomb and quote, cut him with stripes that he lay on the ground, speechless from the excessive pain. Stripes are blows with a rod or a lash, and they make Anthony lose consciousness from the pain. The man bringing Anthony bread witnesses the assault and takes Anthony's broken body back to town to the church of Anthony's youth. It's midnight when Anthony regains consciousness. He wakes to see well-wishers all around him, many of them family members and former friends. They're all asleep. Anthony quietly signals to the man who saved him to carry him back to the tomb. That night, the devil returns. His minions have taken on animal forms.
1: And the place was on a sudden filled with the forms of lions, bears, leopards, bulls, serpents, asps, scorpions and wolves. And each of them was moving according to his nature. The lion was roaring, wishing to attack, the bull seeming to toss with its horns, the serpent writhing but unable to approach. And the wolf, as it rushed on, was restrained, Altogether, the noises of the apparitions with their angry ragings were dreadful.
0: Anthony remains steadfast, but the pain is now unbearable. The commotion caused by the demonic animals shake the walls of the tomb like an earthquake. Suddenly, the roof bursts open. A white light bathes Anthony in healing brilliance. It's God to the rescue. Anthony questions him.
1: Where were thou? Why did you not appear at the beginning to make my pains
0: to cease? God answers that he was at Anthony's side the whole time. Anthony didn't need any help till now. And now that Anthony has shown such fortitude and faith, God promises to make his name known everywhere. The next morning, Anthony leaves the tomb. The encounter with the devil has shaken him, and he wishes to distance himself even more from the trappings of civilization. So at the age of 35, Anthony of Egypt sets out alone into the mountains. As he walks, he notices something glittering in the path ahead. It's a silver dish of inestimable value. Anthony rightly decides it's a trap. He says out loud that he won't be fooled, and the plate evaporates, quote, like smoke from the face of fire. Anthony continues his journey. He spots pieces of gold littered on the ground. More and more piles of gold appear. The sheer quantity of it becomes an unbearable temptation. So Anthony runs towards an abandoned fort on the other side of a river, making pains to not look at the gold at all. When at last Anthony reaches the fort, which was, quote, full of creeping things, the gold disappears. The creepy crawlies inside the fort also disappear when Anthony enters. He discovers a natural spring. With this source of fresh running water and a six-month supply of bread, Anthony decides to make the fort his home and seals himself within it. He lives in the fort for several years in constant mystical contemplation. The only human contact he has is when fresh bread is lowered into the fort from an opening in the ceiling. But Anthony isn't really alone. As the years pass, more and more visitors journey to the fort, forming a camp around it. Some are simply curious, hoping to catch a glimpse of this mystic named Anthony. Others are ascetics themselves, and beg to be taken in as disciples. Just as God had promised, Anthony of Egypt is now a celebrity, and his refuge a tourist attraction. Although no one ever sees Anthony, those who journey to the fort describe hearing quote, piteous voices, and crying, Various theories blame demons or pagans for the commotion, although those who manage to have a peek through the ceiling see no one. Finally, one visitor cries out, asking if Anthony needs their help with whatever is besieging him. At this, Anthony finally speaks.
1: The demons make their seeming onslaughts against those who are cowardly.
0: Sign yourselves therefore with the cross,
1: and depart boldly. Let these make sport for themselves.
0: Echoing Abba Poeman's statement that demons can only amplify the fears and sins within, Anthony reassures the visitors with an instruction to be brave and faithful. Fortified by Anthony's wisdom, pilgrims now only hear singing, Anthony singing hymns at the top of his lungs. After nearly 20 years of solitude inside the fort, Anthony, now about 55 years old, emerges. All present at Anthony's re-entry are astonished at how healthy he looks, not overweight from lack of movement or exercise, not emaciated from starvation. Anthony looks great, and his soul is equally healthy. He had achieved through an ascetic life what martyrs had achieved through an early death. The mystical experiences from the last twenty years had changed him. Anthony now possessed the grace of eloquence to inspire and comfort all who were in his presence. And he'd gain the power through God to heal the sick and exorcise demons from the possessed. Soon, the wilderness of Egypt filled with monks who followed Anthony's example. Some lived together in communities, and it's these men who called themselves brothers that began the monastic movement that would continue to this day. What now follows in Athanasius' Life of Anthony is a lengthy sermon about Satan and his demons, their corrupt nature, and how they're easily defeated by the faithful. Academic Charles Kingsley points out that this section is the earliest surviving attempt at a demonology, a study on the ways of the devil and his minions. That said, it's likely the demonology was added by scribes who copied and or translated Athanasius' original text Years and maybe centuries after its first publication. The main gist of the demonology tract is that infernal forces can only use your own faults and sins as weapons against you, and also that they know they are weaker than the powers of heaven, concepts we covered earlier. At one point, a monk asks Anthony what types of demons exist. There's a vague discussion of six main forms, but Anthony refuses to name them specifically. What's important? is being faithful, not geeking out on the types of demons that exist. There are other books that reveal these infernal details. It's the year 311. Emperor Galerius Valerius Maximinus, commonly known as Daza, has just renewed the Christian persecutions. He'd later rescind the order in 313 after the rise of Constantine, the Roman Empire's first Christian emperor. Amidst the persecutions, Anthony leads his followers back to the city, to Alexandria. He hopes to die a martyr. Martyrdom was still seen as the ultimate act of devotion to God. It wasn't to be. Anthony is arrested, but the judge sets him free due to Anthony's quote, fearlessness and earnestness. When the persecutions end, Anthony returns to his cell in the mountain fort. The life of Anthony tells us he had a crisis of faith over his failure to be a martyr, and doubles down once again on self-denial. He stops bathing, avoiding even stepping in water. He also begins wearing a hair shirt, which he never takes off for the rest of his life, about 40 years. Anthony becomes even more reclusive, and shuts himself in a room inside the mountain fort, away from the monks that now live with him. He reluctantly communicates to visitors through cracks in the walls, usually telling them to go away and pray themselves to cure the ills that trouble them. Anthony's intercession is not only unnecessary, it's unwanted. After a short while, the constant stream of visitors becomes unbearable. Anthony resolves to leave the mountain and journey south to Upper Thebaid, where he's relatively unknown. Before he leaves, a voice sounds in his cell.
1: Even as thou goest to the Thebaid, even if, as thou art minded to do, thou goest down to the cattle pastures, thou wilt have to endure more and double trouble. But if thou wilt
0: really be at rest, go now into the inner desert. The voice is God, who dissuades Anthony from going to another remote mountain and to go instead to the very edges of civilization to the heart of the harsh Egyptian deserts. At that very moment, a train of Saracens passes by. Saracen is a word used by medieval Christian writers to describe Muslim nomads. The Saracens are headed to the desert and welcome Anthony of Egypt into their band. After three days and three nights, they come across a mountain in the desert, an oasis with a small spring at its base, and several neglected date palms. Anthony knows at once that this will be his home until death. The Saracens leave him, gifting all the bread they could afford to give. No sooner had Anthony settled into his remote desert home than his followers discover his whereabouts. They gather in droves, bringing bread and food. Anthony doesn't want to be dependent forever on outside help and asks them for corn, a hoe, and a hatchet. Which they happily bring him. He tills and irrigates the land around him, and grows corn to make flour and bake into bread. When the first crop is ready for harvest, the wild animals with whom Anthony shares the natural spring descend on his patch, eating and ruining everything. Anthony manages to trap one of the animals and admonishes them
1: Why do you hurt me, who have not hurt you? Depart, and in the name of the Lord, never come near this place
0: the chastised creature leaves and none ever trouble anthony again the human intruders don't stop however some are helpful and bring additional foodstuffs like olives pulses oil infernal visitors are also always present the life of anthony tells us quote the devil watched anthony and gnashed upon him with his teeth at night packs of hyenas harass him Anthony easily dispels every supernatural harm with prayers. The devil has one last trick up his sleeves, though. He takes on the form of a centaur, quote, like a man down to the thighs, but having legs and feet like an ass. Unmoved, Anthony crosses himself and speaks a prayer. The devil, in centaur form, flees with his demon retinue. In his haste, he falls and is vanquished for good. For the rest of his life, Anthony lives in the desert, making the occasional trip to visit other hermits and bands of monks who've set up their own desert cells. Anthony performs numerous miracles. Water flows from desert sands to save dying pilgrims. Demons are vanquished, including one that made the boy it inhabited smell like rotting fish, and another that made the possessed eat his own excrement. Incurable diseases are also dispelled. One of these beleaguered a man named Fronto, who gnawed on his own tongue and attempted to gouge out his eyes. Another afflicted a maiden whose eyes, nose, and ears constantly ran with a foul-smelling fluid that turned into writhing worms when it dripped to the ground. Towards the end of his life, Anthony takes trips to Alexandria to preach and perform miracles. His reputation even reaches Emperor Constantine. The emperor, a Christian, seeks out the ascetic for spiritual advice. Anthony's reluctant reply is a little shady. He begs Constantine to be just and to have pity on the poor, then ends the Missal with a reminder that Christ alone is, quote, the true and eternal king. Eventually, Anthony returns to his desert sanctuary. He's now 105 years old, and foresees his own death he informs the monks on a nearby mountain that it's his wish to be buried and not mummified which was the local custom this is a dig at pagan practices which according to athanasius anthony deemed quote neither lawful nor holy at all in his last moments two monks are at anthony's side both of whom had been with him for the last 15 years Anthony instructs them to give one of his sheepskin coats to Athanasius, and to return the tunic Athanasius had given him. His second sheepskin is to go to another bishop, Serapion, a hugely influential Egyptian scholar and saint. Anthony's only other possession, his hair shirt, he bequeaths to the monks in attendance. After uttering these wishes, Anthony dies, peacefully and full of joy. Anthony's body was buried in his desert retreat. Nearby, a semi-permanent camp of followers slowly coalesced into what is now the Monastery of St. Anthony. Today, the Coptic Christian monastery is like a small village with five churches, a mill, a bakery, and gardens. It's about a five- or six-hour drive from Cairo. In the year 561, Anthony's body was disinterred and translated to Alexandria. Sometime in the 7th century, Anthony's relics were taken to Constantinople for safekeeping during the Muslim conquest of Egypt. The Byzantine emperor, likely Emperor Basil the Bulgar Slayer, then gave the relics to the Bishop of Soissons in the 10th century, who built a church to house the bones in a village in the French Alps, which he renamed the Abbey of St. Anthony. A disease called ergotism was rampant in the region. The malady was caused by the long-term ingestion of grain and other food infected by a fungus that results in severe gastrointestinal pain. If left untreated, the infection attacks the nervous system, leading to seizures, psychosis, than death once anthony's body parts were settled in the church miraculous cures were reported it's for this reason that ergotism is called saint anthony's fire athanasius's biographical life of anthony cemented anthony of egypt's reputation as the father of monks and the father of hermits but there's another popular story about anthony not included in his book it was written by saint jerome who was just a boy when Anthony died. Like Anthony, he was an ascetic, a mystic, and doctor of the church. St. Jerome left behind many epistles, didactic letters that were instructions to his patrons on how to live a spiritual life. Many Roman families engaged him for advice, especially upper-class Roman women who had taken a vow of virginity. These wealthy female disciples paid Jerome for correspondence. Jerome's Anthony story from 385 comes from a letter written to one of these women. Her name was Assella. The letter is about yet another hermit, St. Paul the Monk, a Theban hermit who, according to Jerome, fled to the desert before Anthony did. St. Paul the Monk's life begins in a very similar way to St. Anthony's. His wealthy Christian parents die in Alexandria, leaving him their fortune. Paul's brother-in-law wants the money, so he reveals to the authorities that Paul is a Christian. Paul flees to the desert to escape persecution and finds shelter in a man-made cave built in ancient times when Cleopatra was queen. Paul lives there for nearly 100 years in identical conditions of self-denial as Anthony. Paul the monk is now 113 years old. Anthony is a youthful 90. One night, Anthony has a vision in which heavenly agents reveal the existence of this other desert father named Paul. At daybreak, Anthony sets out to find him. After hours of walking, Anthony is lost. Suddenly, a centaur appears. Anthony asks the magical creature for directions. The centaur gesticulates and replies in an unintelligible language, described as barbarous and more of a grinding than an utterance of words. Jerome writes that this monster was likely the devil, trying to frighten Anthony away, or maybe one of the many unspeakable terrors that live in the desert, also attempting to thwart Anthony's plan to meet Paul the monk. Soon after Anthony leaves the centaur behind, he encounters another magical creature, a winged satyr, a half human, half goat creature, Mr. Tumnus from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but with wings. Anthony braces himself for another bizarre encounter, but the satyr turns out to be perfectly lovely, civilized even. The satyr hands Anthony some dates as refreshment. Then he speaks
1: I am a mortal and one of the inhabitants of the desert whom the Gentiles, deluded by various errors, worship by the name of fauns, satyrs, and incubi, I come as ambassador from our herd, that thou mayest pray for us to the common God, who we know has come for the salvation of the world.
0: The satyr explains that the Gentiles, which means non-Christians in this context, believe his people to be pagan monsters. The truth is, they're all Christians just like Anthony. This is a comment on pagans, that a degenerate, half-human creature like a satyr could recognize the Christian god as the true god shows how very depraved the full-human pagans are. Anthony expresses this sentiment to the satyr and cries tears of joy. The satyr flies away. Anthony spends a second day wandering the desert, trusting that God will lead him to Paul. That night, he sees a light in the distance. It's Paul's cave and he heads for it. The men embrace when they meet. Paul asks Anthony what's been happening in the world. Who's the emperor now? Do the ancient cities still stand? Before Anthony can answer, a raven flies into the cave, depositing a loaf of bread on the table. Paul exclaims that this is the first time the lord's raven has brought him a full loaf, enough for both of them. The two hermits then have a friendly argument over who should break the bread. Should it be Paul, the host, or Anthony, the younger of the two? They finally agree to each take hold of one end of the loaf and pull apart at the same time, thereby breaking the bread together as equals. The next morning, Paul has a favor to ask of Anthony.
1: I knew long since, brother, that thou wert dwelling in these lands. Long since God had promised thee to me as a fellow servant, but because the time of my falling asleep is now come, and because I always long to depart and to be with Christ, there is laid up for me, when I have finished my course, a crown of righteousness. Therefore thou art sent from the Lord to cover my corpse with mould and give back dust to dust.
0: God had told Paul that Anthony would come for a visit shortly before the older man's death to help with the burial. Paul asks Anthony to go back to his own cave and fetch the cloak Athanasius had gifted him. Once Paul dies... Anthony is to use the cloak to cover the corpse. Anthony is distraught at the news. He had finally found Paul and had hoped the two could live together, learn from each other. But it wasn't to be. Anthony says goodbye and rushes home to fetch Athanasius' cloak. Paul didn't really care what happened to his body. He only sent Anthony away to prevent him from witnessing the death, which would have disturbed Anthony greatly. It takes two days for Anthony to make the return journey. When he's nearly back at Paul's cave, he sees in the sky a host of angels, leading Paul to heaven. Anthony falls to the desert floor and weeps. He cries out, So late known, dost thou vanish so soon? Anthony, who is ever the teacher, the one whom everyone comes to for comfort and advice, has finally found someone he can turn to that he can learn from, But the one night they had together is the only acquaintance they'll ever have, on earth at least. Anthony enters Paul's cave to see his friend's corpse kneeling with arms outstretched in prayer. He kisses Paul's face and weeps. Then he wraps Paul's body in the cloak. Paul wanted to be buried in his cave, but Anthony doesn't have anything to dig with. The cave floor is too hard for him to use his hands. Just as he's decided he has to go to town, two lions show up. They pause at the corpse's feet and roar terribly. Somehow, Anthony knows they're in mourning. The lions then begin clawing at the floor of the cave. Before long, they've dug out a pit just the right size for Paul's corpse. They turn to Anthony and bow their heads, licking his feet in a blessing, and return to the wilderness. His friend, now buried, Anthony takes Paul's tunic and puts it on. According to Jerome, Anthony wears Paul's shirt for the rest of his life. Athanasius's Life of Anthony is widely credited for being the first hagiography, the genre of saint biographies which are sort of non-fiction and mostly historic. They were written to serve as morality tales, to guide readers in their everyday lives as good Christians. Athanasius took many liberties in the retelling of his friend's life. Academics and authors Lance Jarno and Elaine Pagels point out that Athanasius played down the more mystical aspects of Anthony's life and teachings. He also tempered Anthony's visions with warnings, allegedly from Anthony himself, that glimpses of the future... And of divine scenes must be critically examined and best never repeated, because they're most often tricks planted by the devil. Athanasius was careful to paint Anthony as a divinely inspired ascetic who was part of and sanctioned by the church, not an outsider on his own personal journey to find God. The Anthony in Athanasius' book had, quote, marvelous respect for the canon of the church. An examination of Anthony's surviving letters and stories about him that predate Athanasius' book show the opposite to be true. In the first few hundred years of Christianity, a profusion of popular beliefs and interpretations existed within the Church. Nearly all were in direct opposition to each other and resulted in violent conflicts. Of particular concern to Athanasius were the Arians, Followers of an ascetic from Alexandria named Arius. The Arians didn't call themselves Arians. They were just Christians, and according to them, the real Christians. They believed that Jesus, the Son of God, was separate from God the Father. According to the Bible, Jesus was begotten or made by God the Father. For Arians, this meant Jesus was a lesser being created by a greater being. Both were divine by nature, but Jesus wasn't God. The opposing view held by Athanasius maintained that the Father and the Son were equals, two parts of a trinity that also included the Holy Spirit, all three co-eternal, existing together for all time. The issue came to a head in the year 325 when Emperor Constantine called an assembly of bishops at Nicaea, a city in the province of Bithynia, now modern-day Turkey. The Council of Nicaea was the first official attempt to unify Christians under one common belief system. Nearly every influential cleric and figure was in attendance from all over the Roman Empire, as well as the neighboring Sassanid Empire, modern-day Iran, which had a sizable Christian populace. Representing the Egyptian congregation was Saint Alexander of Alexandria, the current Pope and Patriarch or Head Bishop of Alexandria. He was also Athanasius' mentor, and brought Athanasius with him. Also in attendance was their nemesis, Arius, the leader of the so-called Arian movement. After months of deliberation, the council ruled in favor of Alexander and Athanasius. Jesus the Son was co-eternal with the Father. Arius and his supporters were forced to sign a declaration in acknowledgement of this creed, which they did, although none of them recanted their stance at all in practice. The nature of Jesus and his exact relationship with God the Father would continue to be debated between splintering Christian factions even today. The official ruling from the Council was part of a document called the Nicene Creed. It affirmed a global Christian belief system and was of monumental importance to the development of Christianity. With the passing of the Nicene Creed, Alexander of Alexandria and Athanasius had won. Their victory, however, would be short-lived. When Alexander died in 328, Athanasius was pressured to succeed him as patriarch or bishop of Alexandria. Athanasius didn't want this at all. The council's ruling didn't do much to bring unity between the Arians and other Christians. If anything, passions were further inflamed. Alexandria had a huge Arian following, as did Constantinople, the capital of the Roman Empire and the seat of Christianity. Appointing an anti-Arian like Athanasius as bishop incensed a large part of the population. In 335, Emperor Constantine called another council, this time in Tyre, Lebanon. The purpose was to address charges brought against Athanasius by an Arian priest named Eusebius of Nicomedia. Eusebius was very influential. He was one of Emperor Constantine's spiritual advisors and was also distantly related to him. Athanasius had been accused by Arians in Alexandria of corruption, treason, and witchcraft. The council cleared Athanasius of all charges except for one, cutting off Constantinople's grain supply from Egypt. Emperor Constantine really didn't have an opinion on the point of dogma that was at the heart of Athanasius' arrest. But Athanasius was a troublemaker. It'd be easy enough to sign the papers for his execution, but Constantine knew that making Athanasius a martyr would be a grave mistake and potentially lead to civil war. So Constantine ruled that Athanasius was to be exiled to Gaul and the backwater edges of the empire near modern-day Trier in Germany. Athanasius would be exiled a total of five times, spending 17 years of his life under house arrest. Most of these exiles would be due to the political battles between the Arians and the faction Athanasius supported. And when Emperor Constantine died in 337, his son and heir, Constantine II, a devout Arian, would begin reversing the Nicene Creed with Eusebius' help. This wouldn't prove successful. But in Athanasius' lifetime, it seemed inevitable. So when Athanasius wrote Life of Anthony in the year 360, between his third and fourth exiles, he had an axe to grind. There are long passages in the biography in which Anthony of Egypt derides the Arians, compares them to demons and degenerates. The question of Christ's divinity wasn't something Anthony addressed in Surviving Records. Many of Anthony's teachings were in opposition to Athanasius' interpretation of Scripture and had more in common with what we now call Gnosticism, a collection of ideas espoused by most early Christians. Like Arians, no one called themselves Gnostic. The term was coined in the 17th century by Henry Moore, an English poet and philosopher of religion. The term derives from the Greek word for knowledge, Gnosis, while some Christians refer to themselves as the Gnosti or the knowledgeable ones, the modern definition of Gnostic groups numerous heterogeneous sects who were not by any stretch one uniform group. One factor these groups did have in common is that their Christian practices didn't make it into the Nicene Creed, and all of their philosophies were deemed heresies. According to Anthony and to many of the so-called Gnostic thinkers, One didn't need to go to church or get advice from a priest to know God. Anthony's life is an example of this practice. He turned his back on the material world, including the hierarchy of the church, to successfully encounter God. Given the sheer number of followers that mystics like Anthony, Jerome, and others engendered, the mystics' very presence threatened the stability of a political hierarchy centered in Rome and Constantinople. Athanasius perceived this and angled the biography of his friend to criticize both Arian and Gnostic influences as well as pagan influences that were threatening his ideal of the perfect church. More than 1,500 years after the publication of Athanasius's Life of Anthony, Gustave Flaubert, the French novelist who wrote Madame Bovary, composed a poem in prose entitled The Temptation of Saint Anthony. The 1874 publication is a dreamlike, surreal work that takes place over one night and fleshes out the temptations Anthony faced in Athanasius' book. The images conjured up are fantastically bizarre and highly symbolic. Central to the narrative are the demonic figures of Arius and the proponents of other Christian philosophies, such as Montanism, Sibelianism, Martianism, and many others that have been violently extinguished by the Catholic Church as heresies. These are the disguises the demons take to tempt Anthony, alongside figures from the Bible and classical philosophers and thinkers who represent pagan voices. In the final climactic scene, Anthony confronts the devil himself. They enter into a philosophical debate on the nature of God and whether good and evil mean anything at all to a perfect being. The discussion with the devil causes Anthony to have a crisis of faith. At the last minute, he perseveres and works through it to see Jesus' face in the rising sun when morning finally breaks. Similar to Athanasius before him, Flaubert uses his book about St. Anthony of Egypt to promote his own Christian beliefs. Flaubert was a follower of Baruch Spinoza, a 17th century rationalist philosopher who, like Flaubert, was a pantheist, someone who believes that God isn't a separate being but encompasses everything, and as such, God is indifferent, a concept explored in Flaubert's book about Anthony. The 19th century writer and critic Emile Zola read Flaubert's Temptation of St. Anthony as a commentary on the struggles that artists of the time such as Flaubert faced. They symbolically fought Temptations and the Devil, which represented tensions between 19th century science and faith, the newfound moral and sexual freedoms in turn-of-the-century France, and the horrors of the Franco-Prussian War. Gustave Flaubert mentioned three moments in his life that influenced his love for St. Anthony of Egypt and inspired his book. The first was watching the performance of a famous St. Anthony puppet show in Rouen as a boy. The second was an 1845 visit to the Balbi collection in Genoa, where he viewed a painting that was formerly ascribed to Peter Bruegel, but is now believed to be a painting by a follower. And the third, a St. Anthony engraving by Jacques Callot, which Fulbert purchased and framed in 1848. Both the Callot and Bruegel-esque artworks depict The Temptation of St. Anthony, illustrating the scene from Athanasius's book in which Anthony battles temptations of the flesh and demons. The treatment in both works of art is Hellraiser-like on the one hand, with twisted, half-animal, half-humanoid forms in agony, yet Miyazaki-like on the other, with delightfully weird and whimsical creatures. The earliest surviving depiction of the Temptation of St. Anthony is a fresco at the Santa Maria Antiqua Church in Rome. The fresco was created in the 10th century by an unknown artist. A proliferation of Temptation paintings followed. The animals that tormented Anthony in Athanasius's book were replaced by monsters. Perhaps the most famous of these is the 1501 triptych or 3 panel painting by Hieronymus Bosch at the National Museum of Ancient Art in Lisbon. The left panel portrays St. Anthony at the top, carried high into the sky by airborne demons. One of them is shaped like a boat, carried by a bat-like creature with a fish flying into it. Another looks like a quasi-human figure riding one of the flying fish, holding a third fish in his arms. The demon carrying Anthony is a composite of what looks like a dead frog on his back, on top of a creature shaped like an oak leaf, with impossibly thin, gazelle-like hind legs. At the bottom of this same panel is an injured Anthony, carried away by two monks. This is after the demons in the sky have dropped him to the ground. The monks are taking Anthony back to his cell, which is depicted as a man on all fours. The entrance is through his anus. Although Athanasius doesn't mention St. Anthony being carried into the sky by demons, it's become part of the legend and a popular scene in art. Michelangelo's first surviving painting, which dates to the 1480s, is a copy of an engraving of this demons-in-the-sky scene by Martin Schongauer, created about 20 years earlier. The central panel of the Hieronymus Bosch triptych is the actual temptation of Anthony. It's filled with fantastical and horrible human-animal creatures, fused to each other and to inanimate objects and indescribable organic forms. Some carry weapons, others musical instruments. Anthony is at the center of the panel, leaning over a bench. He points to an altar with a crucifix on it and the figure of Jesus, who points at the crucifix. In the background is a city on fire, possibly a reference to St. Anthony's fire, The right panel of the triptych shows Anthony in mystic contemplation, surrounded by temptations and infernal figures, which he now ignores. Make time to see this painting if you're ever in Lisbon. The National Museum of Ancient Art is incredible. There's also an image on the St. Podcast website. Paintings of Anthony prior to the temptation images, which had their height in the 14th century, show a bearded, Elderly hermit wearing a brown sackcloth. He usually holds a bell, a symbol of a divine calling. In medieval legends, the peal of a church bell could dispel demons, so the bell also alludes to Anthony's successful fight against them. The Greek letter Tau, which is equivalent to our letter T, is also present, usually on a cross or stitched onto Anthony's garments. It symbolizes resurrection and eternal life. A lot of paintings also include a pig. The pig can often be seen in the temptation paintings, sometimes trussed up by demons trying to cook him or just chasing and harassing him. Occasionally, the pig is tempted along with Anthony and gapes at a naked rear end or a pile of luscious food. Several medieval stories explain the presence of the pig. In one, Anthony cures him of blindness and the two become lifelong companions. Another story mentions the efficacy of lard in treating ergotism. The pig, in this case, is a symbol of the cure. And lastly, it was said that the bell worn around the pig's neck helped Anthony keep demons at bay. According to academic and author Nancy Davenport, the accepted explanation for the origin of Anthony's pig is linked to Antonine monks in Italy. The monks were allowed to keep a few free-ranging pigs in town As long as the animals wore bells around their necks to warn people of their presence. The monks rang the pigs' bells to call for donations and sold the pigs to raise money. The pigs started appearing in St. Anthony paintings, and the stories followed. This is also the reason why St. Anthony of Egypt is the patron saint of butchers, bell ringers, and brush makers who used pig hair to make brushes. St. Anthony of Egypt started a revolution. His example offered believers an alternative to dying for their faith to enter heaven. People followed him in the thousands and formed the monastic system of monks and nuns around the world that still exists today. And though his legend was co-opted by politicians and officials to serve their own needs, I see in Anthony of Egypt a rebel someone who didn't fit in with the mainstream culture and expectations of the time. Many of his self-taught practices of meditation, fasting, rejecting the material world, harkens to ancient mystical practices in India, which continue to attract modern-day disciples. We no longer call it mysticism, though. We call it wellness. And the desert cells of Anthony and his ascetic monks are now desert retreats. I wonder what St. Anthony, the mystic in the desert, would think about this. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode in our new season about mystics. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. For images of the artworks, people, and topics mentioned, please have a look on the St. Podcast website at saintpodcast.com. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions for future episodes, please email us at feedback at saintpodcast.com The word saint is spelled out. S-A-I-N-T Special thanks to Simon B. Croft, a book publisher, editor, and author from London, who provided the readings in this episode. And thanks again to Amy Vanacore, a talented musician and great friend who has composed and performed some extra musical interludes and backgrounds. We'll be experimenting a bit with music in upcoming episodes. The next episode in Season 2, Mystics, is about a Roman martyr who was a deacon and executed alongside a friend who was a priest. Not much is known about either men, except that one of them was an exorcist. Tune in next time for a history of exorcism in the Catholic Church and the story of St. Peter, the exorcist.